This is episode 6-8 of Free As In Freedom. I'm Karen Sandler. And I'm Bradley Kuhn. This is Free as in Freedom. So Karen, as promised, we have uh, audio, only only available now as audio, soon, someday to be available as video as well. Yeah, hopefully very, very soon. These are some talks from CopyleftConf, and we have the opening keynote from CopyleftConf. That's right. And what's funny is I think the last show that we published, we'd recorded while... Uh, while Molly DeBlanc was in our, like, in the hotel room where we were recording. So she yeah. was, like, a, a, a quiet studio audience. Did you almost say studio instead of hotel room? No. It sounded like you did. We don't have a studio. I mean, you could have said studio. It was a, you know, a de facto studio. I was, I was thinking, like, live before a studio audience. Yeah, it was, it was a de facto studio. <laughs> That's what I'm well, going to call it. <laughs> um. So... Uh, so Molly was listening to us, and um, and and I can't remember if she spoke up at all during the recordings, but she was there for a couple of episodes, and so it's really fitting that the next episode that we have is her talk, and then we've got some um, interview material as well, right? Yeah. Well, Karen, how quickly you forget the the end of the last episode was the big reveal that Molly had been there the whole time. <laughs> the calls were coming from forgotten. inside the hotel room. Is that a Lost Highway reference? No. No, there was a there was a um, uh, now I'm gonna have to find the audio for this on YouTube and make it at the end of the show. So now I've got to find that. Hopefully, I can find it. But there was a TV movie. So there's a thing in the U.S. they used to do more in the '80s, where they would have a movie made just for television. And so there was some movie made just for television and the big reveal, spoiler alert, in case you want to watch this TV movie from the 80s, it's a babysitter like at home with the kids and she keeps calling to complain about these call, like threatening calls that she's getting on the phone. And then the phone company finally tells her the calls are coming from inside the house. Do you don't remember this thing? Maybe it was I, a real movie, not a TV movie. I don't think I, no, I, yeah. I never. The calls are coming that. from inside the house. Like that's the big reveal of that. Thing. Spoiler, spoilers for everybody who was dying to see this 80s TV movie. You don't even know what it is, so it, yeah. can you be possibly spoiling something if you there haven't is, named it? I think it's the only time the calls are coming from inside the house was ever used. <laughs> of course, it's like part of popular culture now. The calls are coming from inside the house. I'm really confused about calls coming from inside the house. Basically, the, that... the, the person who was going to harm them was inside the house using the internal phone the whole time. The extensions the to talk, like basically, the oh, this is predator like was inside the house the whole time, and she kept calling nine one one to be like, "I think there's somebody calling me," but they were there the whole I see. time. It wasn't like this is old timey phones. This isn't like they. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I have to explain to... that right because people have these phones that they can't understand that there might be a single phone line with numbers of thing, the number of devices that connect to it. That's like a I mean, thing I, that people I actually don't know. Now. Was confused. You were con- wait. We, you you grew up with these same phones that I did. I I know, but that the was extension. A long time you know, ago. get on the extension. And you are much older than me. So two years exactly. <laughs> Almost exactly. much older. So uh, we're gonna hear this talk from Molly. So let's uh, play this audio of the talk for Molly, and then we'll come back and uh, and and talk about the talk that we just heard. Sounds good. 
Hi, I'm Molly DeBlanc. I'm the campaigns manager at the Free Software Foundation. I'm on the board of directors of the Open Source Initiative, and I'm a Debian developer. This is really to say that I'm a free software activist, and I spend basically all of my time thinking about, talking about, and working on free software, which is really amazing and great. Oh, my clicker's not on. Who said I was professional? Um, so a quick disclaimer uh, for the next 15 minutes. Um, I drew these slides, so they might be a little hard to read. Um, and also some people in the audience might have vision problems, so I will be reading the text on every slide. Um, so thank you for bearing with me while I do that. One of the things uh, I'm an expert in is myself. Um, and I'm a really lucky person. I have a lot of opportunity. I'm a native English speaker. And if you've been to FOSDEM or you're here today, you understand how great it is to be able to speak English well, if you want to say I speak English well. Um, I'm well-educated. I have a degree from a respectable university. Uh, I'm also pretty competent. I think calling someone competent is the best compliment you can give them. I'm fairly technical for somebody who doesn't write code. Um, I refinished a table once, so I have that skill set too. Um, but I'm not somebody who appears to be marginalized. Uh, for the sake of this conversation, we're going to define marginalized individuals as those excluded from mainstream social, economic, cultural, or political life. That's from the Sage Encyclopedia of Quantitative Research Methods. But it turns out, actually, I am marginalized. Two parts of my identity, as somebody with bipolar disorder and as a woman, uh, are two parts of my identity that are judged harshly by society. There are sides that are held to impossible standards. And there are things that I get judged for and get held against me all the time, whether I see that in the media or whether I'm do inter interacting with someone on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, I need technology to manage my bipolar disorder. One of the things that's really important to me is to be able to communicate with people in secure, safe ways where I know our conversations can be private. This helps me to talk about how I feel. This helps me to understand how I feel. This helps me piece apart my emotions. It also helps me talk to my therapist. Um, I was discussing with her as I was coming here, like, oh, we're going to be missing a session this week. And she says, oh, well, well, what you can do now is there's this HIPAA compliant chat app so we can have a video call. I was like, well, it's proprietary, right? She goes, yeah, it's proprietary. We talk a lot about software freedom. Uh, women's rights are also a software freedom issue uh, in a lot of different ways. I'm going to talk about stalking and domestic violence right now, um, so I hope that's okay with you. Um, this is a, a pie chart of the lifetime stalking victimization of men and women. This is from the National Center for Injury Prevention and Control from the CDC in the United States. Uh, these statistics are from 2010. Stalking is a problem faced by both men and women. One in six women will be stalked over the course of their lifetime and one in 19 men within the United States. Um, and I think that's a statistic that carries across the world uh, fairly reasonably. Um, so stalking is an issue that anyone can deal with in their life, but it's something women disproportionately face. The way that stalkerware is fitting into the technology and the act of stalking, um, especially by partners, intimate partners, or formerly intimate partners, is staggering with how that's happening today. So there are, there's explicit stalkerware that you can install in someone's phone 
that will allow you access to their contacts, to their text messages, to the conversations they're having, to the apps they're using, to when they're using those apps. But there are also other things. There's turning on uh, location tracking or location sharing on someone's phone, which is something you might not have control over and something someone might be doing, whether it's uh, having GPS coordinates embedded inherently into photos that you're uploading to Instagram or having Facebook automatically put your location when you make a post. Um, domestic violence is also, domestic violence and domestic abuse is also very well aided by technology these days. Um, domestic violence and domestic abuse aided by technology these days. Uh, so for example, if you're someone, and, and women are significantly higher rates victims of domestic violence. This isn't to say that men are, are not victims of domestic violence, but it is definitely an issue more women face than men. Um, so if you're in an abusive relationship and you're looking to get out, you might be looking for resources online. You might be searching websites for shelters or for advice or for hotlines you can call. So whenever you look at that sort of stuff, it gets added into the way that the internet and is showing you advertisements. So groups like RAIN, the uh, rape, assault, uh, rape Abuse Incest National Network, um, and other similar groups, they have advertisements that show up on the margins of your, uh, of your web browsers. So if your computer now knows that you're doing research about these things, it will show you those, and it will show those to anybody else who's also using your computer. Um, with new versions of common web browsers, we're losing the ability to turn on Adblock Plus, or maybe Adblock Plus is okay, but to turn on ad-blocking software. Um, so suddenly you have this population of people who are vulnerable, who are looking for help, who are suddenly at risk again. Um, what I like about this slide is I had to look up what a smart home device looked like because I've never seen one in person. Uh, so IoT devices are also increasingly being used as part of domestic abuse situations. Um, they can be used to do things like play annoying music or play loud music or just make noise at strange times. Um, they can be used to turn on and off the lights in someone's house or make someone's car make noise, turn someone's car on and off, run the battery down so they can't get anywhere. Um, it can be used to control the thermostat. Imagine being in your place and suddenly it being very cold in the winter and being unable to turn the heat on, or it being very hot in the summer and being unable to turn the heat off. Um, imagine having a IoT facial recognition doorbell and being unable to get into your house because somebody else is controlling your access to it. Software freedom helps women. Software freedom is for everyone, but it's especially important for women because of the dangers that they are facing uh, with response to things like stalking and domestic abuse. Software freedom enables trust and consent. When we have the ability to look at our technology, to take it apart, to study it, to understand it, for people to be able to do that, that means that we're creating the, possibil the possibility, we're creating the possibility of a situation where we can look at our technology, understand how it works, and then decide if we want to consent to using it, if we want to trust it enough to say, this is what I'm going to use. And that's very important for people who are marginalized and are already facing other issues. Um, one of the things about it, though, is we still have to trust others. We have to trust you. I have to trust you. As somebody who does not write code, uh, 
I have to make sure, I have to be putting my faith into people, like I assume many of you are, and hopefully some of the people who are listening to this, that you'll be looking at code, you'll be taking apart IoT devices, you'll be finding out the security vulnerabilities in them, and that you'll be telling me about them so that I can make my decisions about what technology I'm using. Uh, technology is really male-dominated, right? That's why, one of the reasons why free software is such a pertinent issue to women. More than 90% of FLOSS contributors of men, and more than 90% of ho smart home devices were installed by men. Um, so there's this kind of point of alienation, uh, especially for women uh, who are being abused with their IoT devices, where they don't even understand how they work or what the, pos the capabilities of those things are. This isn't to say that we need everybody to be able to understand how all of their technology works, as in like they need to have that skill set, but we need the potential for that to be the case. Uh, it turns out that lots of different kinds of rights are free software issues. Uh, refugee rights are a free software issue. So at border crossings, opaque technology is being used to assess the risk of somebody being uh, a terrorist or a criminal or a risk to a country. Um, this technology is proprietary, it's opaque, uh, and it's been shown to blanketly uh, reject certain applications from people coming from specific countries and not necessarily the countries you would think. Uh, case management software that's being used to manage refugee cases is frequently proprietary as well. Um, predictive policing ha in Germany has a tendency to uh, skew towards blaming refugees even when they're not the case. Uh, in one particular day in Cologne, Germany, there were 53 or 58 cases of sexual assault. Uh, more than a significant number of the people uh, who were pulled in for questioning about this were refugees, yet only three uh, of those people were actually arrested for crimes. Um, black rights are a free software issue. Black children see 70% uh, more advertisements for food. Um, when they're using the internet than their uh, white counterparts. Um, and twice as many of those ads are for junk food than is average. Diabetes is a huge issue for black populations. Um, and you're only encouraging, you know, like in this, this kind of technology, when you can't turn off ad block, when you can't understand where these things are coming from, and when you can't control what kind of advertising you're being shown, uh, you're putting these like vulnerable populations at even more risk. Latinx rights are a free software issue. Um, so in the United States, uh, the number I read was about 48% of DUI drunk, dr driving under the influence or drunk driving arrests uh, are Latina women and Latino men. Um, and that was from a few years ago. Uh, so one of the ways that we determine whether somebody uh, is driving under the influence is we use breathalyzers. Breathalyzers are really easy to miscalibrate. And it turns out they're actually also really easy to intentionally miscalibrate. Uh, in my home state of Massachusetts, you cannot use a breathalyzer as evidence in court when charging someone with a DUI. Uh, in Florida, the source code has to be free and available and open uh, in order for it to be considered admissible in court as evidence. Right. Trans rights are a free software issue. Um, when you're, uh, and I will argue that they actually, that free software can help reduce the risk of suicide among trans youth especially. So affirmation of gender, uh, identity, names, and pronouns are 
having those affirmed and recognized significantly lowers the risk of suicide among trans youth. Uh, Jane McGonigal, uh, who's a researcher around games, has talked about how games are opportunities for us to explore our identities and to play idealized versions of ourselves, right? So it's where we can be the person we think we want to be. We can explore our identities. We can try being different people. We can try using the pronouns that we're more comfortable with. And that gives us an opportunity to start getting that affirmation and building who we are. Uh, trans people also very much need encrypted technologies for similar reasons that I need them. They're having delicate conversations that can put them at risk. Um, they can be dealing with ostracization socially, uh, economically, politically, or death threats. Um, and having these safe communication types of tools is necessary. Everyone needs user freedom. I'm not saying they don't. I think we all really need it. I'm saying marginal populations also need user freedom, and they need it in a unique way. You know, when, we start, when we're starting from here, we only need so much user freedom to move forward. But when you're looking at people who are starting from a place further back than us, you know, you're dealing with an equity issue. You're dealing with them needing extra support and extra help to get to the same starting place the rest of us are already at. Um, and this, you know, this changes on a case-by-case -case basis. So uh, quick example, for work, like I might have a harder time waking up in the morning than someone else because I'll have a harder time sleeping at night. Um, so I like need like a little bit of extra help there. Um, but not necessarily as much help as somebody who is dealing with major issues in terms of transportation, which is also a free software issue and I'm happy to talk about later. Um, will free software save the day? Can free software save the day? I like to think it can and I like to hope it can, but whether it will is entirely up to you. Um, we have tools, we have tools like CopyLeft. Uh, we can use CopyLeft to make sure that not just the software that we're developing is free, but the software that is based on that, the software that is inspired by that, and the software that people are building in the future is also free, so can also be used to help these populations and help these people. You can use tools like employment contracts. Um, when you have an employment contract, uh, if you're a developer or a technical employee at a company, when you're building and licensing uh, agreements into your employment contract, you're having the opportunity to make sure that your paid work and the things that you're developing in those cases are free. And ideally, you can also make the arguments to your employers that they should be copy left and that you'll be able to then bring that freedom forward. The most important thing you the most important things that can happen though are things that you can do yourself. You can support organizations like the Free Software Foundation, the Software Freedom Conservancy, and other orgs that are doing copyleft compliance work. Um, you can use your voice, your skills, your technology, uh, your advocacy, your activism, your knowledge, whether you're a designer, whether you're a developer, regardless of who you are, you can use those and use the knowledge that there are people who need your help to get to the same starting place. Um, you can be the ones examining their code. You can be the ones looking at IoT devices and judging their security. You can be developing tools with them in mind. You can think about, well, how will somebody who has vision issues read this slide deck? So I'd like to thank you all for listening to me. That's my time. Um, I'd like to thank CopyleftConf for having the event today and inviting me to speak here. I'd like to thank the FSF uh, who helped me come here. Uh, and I'd really like to thank you for listening to me for the work that you've done for free software and the work that you're going to be doing for it moving forward. Thanks.
So uh, we, we didn't give Molly a very long keynote slot. I guess people just learned. But I, I have to tell you that I'm so proud and excited that that was the first keynote of the first copyleft conf. Well, the, the interesting thing to me was uh, that there was a lot of discussion about uh, how proprietary software hurts uh, people and hurts specifically people who are not in a position of privilege. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I and I thought that like sort of drawing the line explicitly from software freedom to social good and why we need free and open source software, why we need software freedom um, and why proprietary software is so dangerous. I, 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 I haven't heard very many other people try to articulate that argument without, you know, with that. It was so good. It was so good. I loved it. I'm getting all excited. So, uh, so I, 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 interestingly, if I'd known she'd been giving that, if I'd known the content of the talk before we did our Fosdem keynote, which of course was two days before this talk occurred chronologically um, in the history of the of the world, uh, I might have included something that she re- referenced. So I have actually used uh, that. Uh, I, I think I'm public that I see a therapist, and I have used the HIPAA compliant chat, and it was a difficult decision. Um, in fact, I was part of a. Um, a structured group therapy at the previous FOSDEM. And I had to make a choice whether to sign up for, basically I had to choose between not, well, I had three choices. I could have not done that structured thing, which only, there was, it only runs once a year. So there was this group therapy that I could join for 10 weeks that only runs once a year. So I would have to wait to the next year, but it didn't matter if I waited one year because the, when the therapy session runs, it's always conflicts with FOSDEM. So I would have to, if I wanted to go to all the sessions, I would have to miss FOSDEM. So my option was not do it at all, miss the sessions while I was at FOSDEM, not go to FOSDEM. I guess I have four choices. The other choice is not go to FOSDEM some year and, and do this uh, 10-week group therapy or use the HIPAA-compliant app that she mentioned, which, of course, is proprietary software. In the end, I used the proprietary HIPAA-compliant app. Uh, and so I, so I actually could have put that in our keynote that we did when we, we talked about it at length on the podcast a few episodes ago, a number of episodes a few episodes ago. Uh, but I made the decision. I, I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm impressed, and I feel somewhat, uh, you know, somewhat ashamed myself that I gave in and used it when Molly has stood strong and refused to use the that particular app. But in fact, she's quite correct that that is the only uh, HIPAA compliant app for uh, for doing therapy sessions via video chat. Yeah, I love that Molly's focused on the social realities of proprietary software um, and connecting that to um, to software freedom advocacy. I think her, I think it's just very powerful. And uh, you know, and we talked a little bit. So we we do have some additional material with Molly. We have. S- I wonder if we should play s- that right now. Exclusive bonus content. Well, right now, unfortunately, while we we intend to get the videos up very soon. We, we don't mean to make this uh, exclusive, make the talk exclusive content right now. Well, that was exclusive. Uh, I was talking about the exclusive content they're about to hear, Karen. They're about to hear exclusive bonus content. Right. Extra. Ex- and why, with, without further ado, why don't we play it? Exclusive bonus content available only here on Free as in Freedom coming up after the break. <laughs> We're here live at Copyleft Conf at the first ever, and Molly DeBlanc gave an amazing keynote. Thank you. I wanted to ask you um, to 
expand a little more. You were you were um, you were uh, compressed into 15 minutes for our keynote slot, so you uh, covered a lot of ground and you covered it well. And I was wondering um, if you want to expand a little bit more about how reliance on proprietary software might um, might impact um, mental health. Sure. Uh, so there are, in my opinion, there are two sides to this, and one of them is how you're dealing with your mental health in these official medical capacities. Um, so one of the things I mentioned was that my therapist offered to do uh, video sessions with me using this HIPAA compliant software. Um, and a lot of that software that uh, is HIPAA compliant that meets these safety and security and encryption requirements for being supported by uh, being supported by health insurance companies and medical regulations is proprietary um, and is limiting towards people trying to take advantage of those resources. Um, there's also this less professional side that I think is something we don't talk a lot about when we talk about mental health, which is not necessarily self-care um, per se, but the way we use tools and resources to manage our relationships to manage the time that we have. Um, I, I know multiple people who say that a particular set of DRM-free Harry Potter books have saved their life um, because they have this DRM-free set of books and they can listen to it at any time. I have, like, I have acquired this. Um, and you know, whether you're on an airplane or you're trying to fall asleep or you're camping or you're just going through this time where you're depressed and you're debilitatingly depressed and you're suicidally depressed. Uh, and it's not just that you're being able to interact with this story, but you're being able to have this comfort with you at all times whenever you need it. So Molly, I, I'm very impressed uh, that you made the decision to not use the HIPAA compliant proprietary software. Uh, uh, following up on the theme that our uh, our listeners heard on Karen's and Mai's FOSDEM keynote, I have in fact uh, for a group therapy session where I was going to miss two sessions due to due to free software travel, um, I actually used uh, HIPAA client, compliant uh, soft proprietary software to participate in a group. So uh, a therapy group that I was in. So I, I think it's, it's, uh, you know, you're, you're doing better than me and your commitment to software freedom, just so you know. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's, it's very difficult choices that people are forced to make. And I felt as you did very, uh, very, I had to make a very painful so uh, choice. Uh, I, I also want to ask you, you, you because you're well known for your work in advocating for openness, friendliness, uh, well, good treatment, strong codes of conduct in communities, communities welcoming diversity. Since we're at CopyleftConf, I have often said that Linux, uh, the kernel project, is the most important copylefted program in history, and I really think that's true. It's also widely considered one of the most difficult uh, and sometimes even toxic environments for developers to work in. Since we're at CopyleftConf, I want to ask you about how do you feel that issue is impacting our ability to get uh, developers uh, interested in developing a copylefted kernel, and how is that impacting uh, the future of software freedom? Something I hear a lot from individual developers, and this, so this is anecdata, um, is that especially women, especially people of color, um, people who are queer or identify as LGBTQ in other ways, Ha don't feel welcome in communities, they don't feel welcome in free software, and they don't feel welcome in Linux. 
uh, in the Linux kernel community. And because of that, they're not participating. So the, the general arguments in support of diversity uh, and the diversity initiatives is that you're creating these, uh, these sets of skills and these sets of thoughts and these sets of ideas that are different from one another and that you're bringing these new things in. Um, I think that the Linux kernel community uh, is, is quite famous for being terrible. Um, once for fun, I did some analysis uh, of the way people were using swear words on the mailing lists, um, which I did in this very lighthearted manner, but I realized it's actually a very serious issue when people are even using words like feminist uh, in negative insulting contexts, um, as well as uh, other things that I'm certainly not comfortable repeating um, in public and on recordings. Um, so I think by instituting firm codes of conduct, by having, by meeting these, what, what are considered standards for people developing codes of conduct, you are going to be able to create uh, a more welcoming and a more diverse community by having reporting mechanisms, by having examples of what hurts people, by having uh, recourse, by letting people know what's going to happen when they make a report, by having diverse reporting teams. Like that's going to be how that you create a better community. And that's really important when you're dealing with a copyleft project like Linux. Do you think that, um, so I, I find it very interesting that sometimes in the copyleft communities, there are, um, or in, in some of the bigger copyleft projects, like the Linux kernel, um, but others as well, there have been very vocal um, uh, folks who are opposed to codes of conduct. Um, and I think uh, we three at least um, agree that copyleft would be so much stronger um, with codes of conduct that were enforced. Um, how do you think that we can um, tie the two issues together a little bit more in the future? Hmm. That's a tough question. Um, and one I haven't thought about really before. So this is going to be me thinking as I talk, and I hope that's okay with everyone. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, but I think that as we work on developing greater knowledge and education around the importance of copyleft, we're also going to at the same time be looking at the communities in general that are using and implementing copyleft licenses. Um, and it's important that those projects are strong and it's important that those projects are robust and usable. So I think that there is a strong connection between supporting the user freedom supporting initiatives that we care about and making sure that the projects that those that have those ideals within them are things that are going to be perpetuated and are things that are going to be usable. So I'm going to put you on the spot, but I'm going to give you a, uh, a the answer that, that I would probably give, and then you can just give it back to me if you want to. The answer I would probably give to this is I have not studied it in enough detail yet to have a specific recommendation. I hope that's not your answer. The question is, what specific recommendation would you make to Linux now that they've adopted a code of conduct that they should do given their current mechanisms of, of, of reporting and so forth? What change should they immediately make that would improve the situation? I don't know enough about this circumstance to make an educated response. Um, I, I'm not, you know, I read the Linux kernel community's code of conduct. Uh, I don't think they even called it that at the time. The, oh, the, the, the last one, the code of conflict. Yeah. The code of conflict. Yeah. Um, I remember that. And I think the name code of conflict to begin with is not the best name because it implies that you're only, 
participating in a conversation once there is a problem, as opposed to thinking about ways to prevent problems. So that might be a good first step. So now they have a real, now they have a, um, I was going to say a real code of conduct, an actual standard template code of conduct. Um, and I think that they're, they're taking steps in that direction. I think it's very interesting. I think uh, we'll see how things develop in the Linux kernel. And, um, you know, I, I'm hoping that there's improvement there and that will spread to other copyleft and other free software communities in general. Mm-hmm. So Molly, is there anything else uh, that you can think of that, you, that from your talk that you want to uh, reiterate or make sure uh, people take away from it uh, that you want to share with the listeners? Um, what I think is the, so, that, so there are a few things that I really wanted to convey and I want people to understand. Um, one of them is that in general, everything is a free software issue. Uh, this is a talk Karen and I gave at the last DebConf um, where we were challenging people or asking people to challenge us to find new ways to think about the way user freedom comes into how we interact with technology. I really want us to give that talk again, and I really want people to ask us tough questions as to what is and isn't a free software issue. I, uh, so that's a good challenge for you guys right now, which is to invite us to your conference to speak on this. Shameless plug. Shameless plug. Um, uh, listeners can email in what they th- th- things they think are not a free software issue, and we'll, we'll try to get Molly back uh, for Molly and Karen to, uh, to, to explain why they are free software issues. Incidentally, or related to that, I, uh, I spent a brief period of time getting really into traffic light policies and traffic light regulation technology because it was the thing I could think of that seemed the most remotely. That's a free software issue. It is a free software issue. (laughs) Let's let's reconvene this on another podcast. (laughs) Okay, sorry. Molly, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Your keynote was amazing and it was the perfect beginning to our very first CopyLeft Conf. Thank you. Thank you so much. I had a lot of fun. I love talking about these issues with Molly. Um, you know, I one of my favorite talks that I've ever given was at um, at Debian Conf, the um, the DebConf, the Debian conference, where Molly and I gave a keynote together entitled "That's a Free Software Issue," and it basically was born out of Molly and I sitting around and talking about how far-reaching the issues of software freedom are, and so. Um, listening to that interview again just reminds me of how much fun I have talking about these issues with Molly and how much I've learned from her. Well, the the important thing that she's bringing up is that these things intersect. We talked some in that interview there about the problems that copyleft projects face. One of the important things that I think was somewhat unsaid is that uh, copylefting your software project is a necessary but not sufficient condition to make it a uh, responsible and software freedom and community rights respecting project. Copyleft is just the first step uh, and choosing the license is just the first step. And I think the point that Molly's making with a lot of her rhetoric, which I agree with, is that there are other things that you have to do to make a project uh, welcoming and uh, ready to accept people from other communities and uh, to be able to support people who have uh, different needs and haven't approached software from a position of privilege. Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I think that um, that Molly definitely gives a brings a, a, a unique perspective and new spin. I think she makes a lot of these issues much more fun to think about in a way, even though obviously what she's talking about is 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 also very serious. Yeah, and it's it's disturbing to me that um, 
um, LGBTQTIA plus people don't feel accepted in Linux. And she's correct about that still. That that's not a, that's not a community that's, it's, it's still a tremendous amount of toxic masculinity in that community that's problematic. I honestly, I hate to say it, but I think it's an exceptional, there are exceptional communities in the free and open source software world that, that do feel inclusive to all. Like, I, I think we have such a big problem. I mean, you know, just a few days ago, I was sitting at a, um, I had a meeting at a large grant making organization and I was talking about outreachy and um, the person I was talking to was new to the fields. They had, um, they had, they were basically getting up to speed and trying to understand the area, the portfolio that the grant making organization was funding, and um, outreachy was one of the initiatives that they wanted to um, uh, to to co- think about uh, think about funding. And so I, you know, I do this from time to time, and um, and I've met with quite a few grant making organizations and had these discussions, um, and usually with people who are in varying degrees of in the know. And when I was sitting down for this meeting, the questions were like, why is it so bad yeah. <laughs> in, in open source software? What about it is because, you know, I, I have a slide with the statistics that talk about, you know, uh, representation in tech generally, but then in free software in particular, and it's so much worse. And I, I think that all these issues are wrapped up together, and they're, they're very hard to tease out separately. I, I agree with you. I, I think that there there are small things that could be done that I think uh, larger, older FOSS communities are not doing, uh, which is really unfortunate. Uh, and and certainly I certainly I think that uh, we haven't focused uh, free software, and this relates to the corporate stuff that I complain about a lot. That we're looking at writing FOSS to help big companies now, and big companies generally are not serv- serving these people. Uh, an example related to the things Molly was talking about. Uh, I'm aware of a, a domestic violence uh, shelter here in Portland, Oregon, where I live, who recently uh, were unable to service their participants, people who are coming to escape from an abusive situation uh, with uh, new devices, because it used to be the case that uh, phone companies gave refurbished devices uh, to the shelter for them to give out, and they don't have those anymore. They're not offered. I think phone companies generally and and tech companies aren't refurbishing devices anymore because it's not cost effective for them to do it, and they're not giving them new devices. So they're in this weird situation where most people, I wouldn't say most people, but many people who show up to the shelter have spyware installed by their abuser on their device, uh, and they need a replacement device uh, because they're they not safe. And we're, we're not, a, a, and, and free software doesn't really seem to care about that problem, which really troubles me that that's not that's not a target audience we're looking for to serve, uh, which we should be. Yeah, I mean, and I think that it's funny, because I think what the I think a very high percentage of contributors feel strongly about security and privacy, but they uh, but their rationale for for wanting it is uh, is a little different. And so they're not focused on these issues um, when they absolutely should be. Well, I'll be even more radical than that. I, I think the security and privacy, uh, the, the kind of libertarian slant that's traditional in the FOSS community um, is incredibly problematic. It's, it comes from a place of privilege. People saying uh, that, you know, people being afraid that the government's going to find out what they're doing and all this kind of stuff that, that doesn't consider the people who are most vulnerable, who are most likely to be susceptible to uh, things like advertising. Um, I complained about this, uh, you know, this, this, um, 
uh, Delta thing. Uh, this is not a security and privacy issue per se, but it's similar in that it's advertising. Um, I complained on my blog about how Delta made these ads saying you shouldn't join a union because it's $700 a year. And you could think of all the Xboxes you could buy with the $700 a year and all the video games you could buy. Um, and that's, I mean, that's targeting a vulnerable population who's not making enough money where they would actually have to make the choice between paying their union dues or buying an entertainment device and, and trying to manipulate those people with that kind of messaging. Um, it works because people have to make those kind of hard choices. And if we live in a world, a privileged world in free in free software, where we're saying, oh, well, we don't have to make those choices. So we're concerned about security and privacy for our own kind of selfish reasons uh, that are that, that are just for, you know, for our own, our own desire to be not not tracked or whatever. I'm 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 less I'm very concerned that that's where where it's coming from, rather than about people who are in vulnerable situations who really need the safety from advertising, the safety from people spy wearing on them. I agree with you that we need special care. Um, we need to take special care to help protect vulnerable people. But I disagree with you in that I think that the attitude that many folks have towards their own security and privacy because they're worried about government tracking or they're worried about some other surveillance is perfectly reasonable. And I think, in fact, uh, very valuable and so I, you know, I, I, I hear what you're saying, and I think I mostly agree with you. I just think that, um, I think that watching out for other kinds of surveillance is also really important. And the kinds of the ways that we are integrating technology into our lives and the profound nature of that surveillance means that it, you know, no matter how privileged you are, in fact, often the more privileged you are, the more you're buying these devices and the more this uh, technology is 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 in your home, I think then I, I think it can only benefit by unifying all we can only benefit by unifying all of these concerns together. And I think that it's perfectly reasonable for someone who um, who maybe isn't worried about becoming a victim of domestic violence or who isn't worried about becoming a target because they're in some other way vulnerable should still worry about their security and privacy and we should support them in that. Yeah, I agree with that. I, I, I think that, that, um, uh, th there's some tendency for people. I think what I'm complaining about is there's some tendency for people to believe that, well, because they can do their own thing, they don't need to worry. I mean, this sort of goes for, for the same thing with GPL compliance and all the sort of things where people are like, well, I can do my own devices and set my own devices up. So what do I care if the average consumer is being screwed? Like I don't I like a lot a lot of people who work on Linux don't buy the devices that are often violating the GPL because they buy more custom stuff that is not violating the GPL. Um, now, since more and more things are, <laughs> I guess I guess it's hard to avoid it now. But there's is often been the case that the cheaper, less you know, the devices that poor people are more likely to buy are the ones more likely to be violating the GPL, more likely to be funded by advertising, all that sort of thing. So that's that's I think where I'm coming from on that. Yeah, I hear you. I mean, I think that um, that I've been struggling with this ever since uh, you and I started talking deeply about these issues. When we first started recording a, a podcast together back in the day, um, I've been sort of struggling with, um, we, I remember we, we had early conversations about whether it was worth talking to non-technical people about software freedom, and we had uh, real disagreements about that. But that's come up as a theme um, a little bit over the, the time that we've been recording together. But I, for me, you know, I found this that we've been on this movement of first thinking that in some ways software freedom is really about developer freedom. That if you're a developer, you should have access to the source code, and 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 you you should. Um, and 
you know, there, there, there's all of the the goodness that comes from software freedom for developers. But now I think we've um, we've articulated our cause a little bit better, such that now we understand that it's much more about user freedom, yep. um, and that we really need to focus on uh, the societal impact of software freedom, even if those users um, are are sometimes users that wouldn't be able to modify their devices for themselves. Yeah, and uh, I obviously I've moved on that position because I had the other side of that position for a very long time. I I still think that developers are important because it is it is people with technical skill that are implementing DRM that are writing proprietary software, all those sort of people. So I I feel like I have to convince those people to stop doing this horrible bad acts that they're doing. You know, basically everybody working for Apple is harming society every single day, and trying to stop them is kind of a top priority for me. Uh, but it, I, I, of course it's not working because people still go to work for Apple because they pay tons of money and people like to make tons of money. And there's, I, I, I guess I had this view in the old days. I, I had this basically, um, uh, naive view is really the right word for it. That once developers learned about software freedom, they wouldn't want to work for Apple anymore. And what I've learned is people can be very smart and talented in software and still want to harm the world. <laughs> and I guess I had this naive idealistic view that developers were all generally good people. Um, but I'm, I've learned over the years that a lot of developers are bad people who want to do bad things just oh, for their own selfishness. I don't, I don't <laughs> know that you need to go there um, because I think most people are good people or think of themselves as good people want to be good people. And I think that they don't realize their own power. They don't realize that the decisions that they're making really has an impact. And that if developers together would stand up and say, this isn't work that we think is worth doing, I think the tech companies would be forced to move. We're already seeing employees of tech companies exerting pressure on their employers and getting results. So, you know, I think, and this is one of the things that we've been sort of focusing on um, at Conservancy, in particular through Contract Patch. Um, but uh, but in general, I think, you know, if, if developers realized how much power they had, they might feel differently. But I think that they just feel like they're doing a job that pays them and they're not, A, not thinking through the deep societal implications of it and B, they think that the management is making the decisions and they're just, you know, a, a cog in the machine. Yeah, I, I could get more on board with that if software development paid the way that, say, um, you know, uh, say like uh, lawn maintenance paid or, or something like that. Like I, I like I know like I, I got a lawn service that doesn't use uh, Roundup uh, and will not use um, chemicals in that way because I was really uncomfortable that we had a lawn service that was using those because there's been uh, there's been basically confirmation now that Roundup is is a carcinogen and all this sort of stuff uh, and uh, and and so like the I, I I can't give a hard time to the people who work for those companies because you know, they're being paid so poorly that it's it's really difficult for them to re- they're probably not able to get a different kind of job developers are incredibly highly skilled and incredibly overpaid. Um, and so I feel I, I feel less sympathy for them when they choose to do these proprietary things. And say, oh, I'm just you know, I'm just working here. What am I supposed to do? Now I think they like I think all workers should. I think they should unionize. I, I think developers should unionize, and they don't need to demand more money because they're getting plenty of money. But demand things like I want to work on free software. I don't want this company to be producing proprietary software. All those sorts of things that they could organize on. And I, I think the I I, I've, I always say in my talks that thought experiment idea of what if everyone woke up tomorrow who who's able to write software and said, I'm not re- writing another line of proprietary code ever again. I'm releasing all my software freely when I write it, period. And I won't write anything. 
Like if there were universal strike uh, for that issue tomorrow, like we, we'd so- we'd solve a lot of the problems in in proprietary software. Yeah, I mean, I think we gave up a lot in the name of adoption. We gave up a lot in like the name of oh, but people will see how good free software is, and over time there will be more of it, and um, and eventually there will be such a strong wave that we'll never go back. And so just by working in the industry, I'm helping. And I think that there's been this real cognitive dissonance in this subtle way that having these high paying jobs have impacted people, you know, and I, I think, I think people really do struggle with it. I think I know a lot of developers who care about software freedom and they, they struggle with this because they are very comfortable in their jobs. And it's so easy to believe that the work that they're doing to help companies use and promulgate their own software um, as free and open source software is somehow helping. Yeah. And, and, and I don't, and, I, I think, I yeah. think your criticism of my comments is correct in that we can't paint this as, as a purely binary situation. It's not like the developers writing proprietary software are the ones doing, uh, doing all the wrong, like uh, like pure wrong period. And the ones writing free software are doing right. Um, there's a whole spectrum of how bad things are. Uh, you use the example a lot in your talks of the developers who wrote the Volkswagen code that lied about emissions, right? I mean, that's a whole nother level of, of bad action um, that, that developers who did that should basically, I mean, I think there should be in something that, that, that makes makes some sort of court ruling that for, forbids them from writing code the rest of their careers. Like that's such a bad act and so um, antisocial of an act that, that it deserves serious punishment. And that's very different than just say, just working for quote, quote unquote, just working for Apple. So I, so I think there's a whole spectrum there. Uh, but I, I, I think that developers uh, are an incredibly privileged position and they don't think about these issues. One of the reasons Bonley's talk was so useful is I, I, I don't think, I don't think the average developer sits and thinks, well, what does it mean that somebody who needs, um, you know, needs some sort of counseling and has to use a, a website for it? Like, what does it mean for them to not be able to review the code for privacy? They just have to trust that it's HIPAA compliant, right? But they can't actually verify that for themselves. Uh, I, I don't think the average developer really thinks about that. They don't really think about that the outcome of their work um, is impacting uh, the sort of the, the people who ha- are the most needy in our society. I think that's right. And these issues are complex because if, you know, many of the proprietary software solutions are doing better in areas like accessibility. And so, you know, obviously it would be, I mean, obviously to us and our listeners, it would be so much better if that, um, if that software were free and open, if it, you know, if it could be improved and if, you know, the proprietary software for accessibility reasons is so insidious because it locks people into these proprietary solutions and they are so reliant on, um, on the software that if, for example, they change jobs or they graduate from school, they no longer have access to them. And those are that's a real injustice that is part and parcel of proprietary software. But at the same time, a lot of the free alternatives don't aren't, aren't viable alternatives. So, you know, this, this is the problem. I wish that software freedom were black and white, but it's one issue that is complexly interwoven with all of these other ethical issues in technology. Right. And, and the proprietary software companies are able to exploit that very well. I mentioned Apple a few times. Apple is being incredibly successful right now exploiting a false dichotomy, specifically that because 
Apple software is not primarily advertising funded. It's the traditional proprietary software model where they sell it for very large amounts of money and make obscene profits. It means they can criticize Google and Facebook and others to say, well, these advertising funded proprietary software platforms, those are the ones that are hurting your privacy because they're willing to sell you out to the nearest advertiser. We at Apple, they say, won't do that because you're paying us money to respect your privacy and and, and security. Uh, Now, we can and of course, as free software activists, easily poke holes in their argument. Uh, but w- but people really are um, kind of seductively influenced by a false dichotomy. So when Tim Cook gets up there and says that, it's very easy for people to say, well, wait a second, Apple has my back and Google and Facebook don't uh, because they, they don't think that there's a third alternative at all. Yeah, I mean, I think we can, I, I don't know if you had more to say on that, but I sort of think that, that this this is a lot. I, I, I think I want to leave Molly's, talk an interview um, on, you know, in such a strong note on all the things that she uh, she said and has been influencing our thinking on um, on these issues, too. I wonder if we should take a second to update people on where Molly is now, since we took so long to come around to including this content. None of the introductory material about Molly is still current. <laughs> Right. So Molly no longer works at the Free Software Foundation. She's an employee of the Gnome Foundation now. Uh, So that's as of a a couple of, by the time you hear this, probably a couple of, uh, about a month and a half ago or so. And also Mm -hmm. Molly is not uh, only on the board of the OSI. She's not only an OSI board member, she's also a president. I get that reference. Yeah, yeah. So I get it. It's a it's a hair club for men reference. It is indeed. But she but she Which is now the president of the open source initiative, uh, as well as being on the board. So uh, so we hope that uh, more software freedom stuff will be forthcoming from the OSI uh, with this new board and with Molly as its president. Yep. So uh, I'm sorry, before, I just gave an awkward silence. I think this is uh, basically saying that we uh, we we can wrap wrap things up. Well, before we go, Karen. So there's been a suggestion. Uh, a, a a a professional podcaster has suggested that one of our uh, gave me a list of uh, grievances about our podcast. One of which was um, numbering our episodes in hexadecimal. Uh, now that was oh, my no. thing. So I was wondering if you had thoughts, or if we wanted to pull the listeners' thoughts on whether we should end. The use of hexadecimal for our show numbering. We should definitely pull our listeners because for me, I just think it—you know—it's a—it's a numbering system. It's arbitrary no matter what. So I, I really don't care. Yeah, and and we're the only only podcasts in the world that's numbered in hexadecimal. Like that makes us unique. We would just be like everybody else if we used <laughs> the mere base ten system. Yeah. So I just uh, I I don't really find any I don't find either argument convincing to be totally honest I think it doesn't matter why oh, well, would, why you know would the, anyone you know care the argument about that? why why you should just always use base ten right uh, which is an ableist argument by the way which is that basically ten fingers that that somehow human beings are are innately uh, geared towards base ten due to having ten fingers no I mean the argument is that most people are I mean that that we're the average person is familiar with base ten. So well, the, the, but then you take it one step further, and the argument of why is it that we decided on base ten as a default? The argument well, is obviously it, it is. That's what I, people say. They say sure. Monsoft. <laughs> okay, I've heard anyway, this argument I, made. I'm I'm weighing in to say I really don't care. Okay. 
Well, I, I suppose I should now disclose that. So, so uh, I'm sure people have discovered this, um, but there is uh, uh, the, the metadata in MP3 and AUG files. You can say the track number. The fact of the matter is all track numbers are in decimal and I've been doing them in decimal all along. So if you look at the metadata, the decimal number has always been there since the beginning. Bum, bum, bum. What a big reveal. <laughs> so if, if people want to complain about hexadecimal and say that this uh, that we're never going to reach the next level of popularity unless we ditch hexadecimal, which was the argument that was made to me, they can write in and say that. But if they don't want to write in and say that, instead, Karen, if they want to support the show in some other way, what should they do? Ah, if you would like to support this show, please, 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 please become a um, Software Freedom Conservancy supporter. Um, that's sfconservancy.org. Bradley and I both work at Conservancy, and uh, being able to have that as our job allows us to do this recording. And recently, uh, we've made sure that we were on all the proprietary and semi-proprietary uh, hosting services, which allow for reviews. So if you happen to have heard us on one of those services, uh, we don't urge you to sign up for them. You know, we have an MP- uh, RSS feed. You can just come and get the show right from FAI.us. That's Foxtrot Alpha Indigo Foxtrot.Uniform Sierra. You can go to that website and get an RSS feed and subscribe to it in the normal way. But if you happen to use one of these other services, proprietary or semi-proprietary, to get podcasts, you can go on there and you can leave a review. You can say how much you like us. Uh, We hope you won't leave a negative review, but if you leave a positive review, it will make us more popular. More people will hear the show, which is really good for us and gets the message of free software out. So that's another thing you can do to support the show. But mostly, thanks for listening. Free as in Freedom is produced by Dan Lynch of danlynch.org. That's D-A-N-L-Y-N-C-H dot O-R-G. The Free as in Freedom theme music was written by Mike Tarantino and is performed by Mike Tarantino with Charlie Paxton on drums. You can learn more about our work at the Software Freedom Conservancy at the website sfconservancy.org. Conservancy is a 501c3 charity and is supported by your donations. An RSS feed for this show is available from faith.us. That's F-A-I-F dot U-S. All episodes of Freeism Freedom are licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License. We've traced the call. It's coming from inside the house. Our squad car's going over there right now.